Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose work reminds us that sometimes a relaxing weekend away can occasionally lead to rather dire circumstances. As the writer and director of the award-winning festival hit Crazy Bitches, she explored the idea of how vanity can turn deadly on vacation, and recently returned to that universe with more luxurious mayhem with the release of Crazy Bitches Spa Day. A celebrated filmmaker, she's also been behind such projects as Meth Head, Dinner for Four, and Beyond Words, among others. Please welcome to the show writer, director, and producer, Jane Clark. Hello. Hi, welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you. It's so good to have you on. I uh, know that we're going to have a lot to chat about. Uh, recently, we were able to unite down in San Diego for a panel at Comic-Con, yeah. and uh, you just had so many awesome things to say, and we got an hour and that we had to share with like seven people. Yeah. So now it's just you and me, and we're going to dig in and all of this stuff. I'm ready. Uh, but before we do any of that, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror relate to you? Why do you think genre audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? Well, you know, it was funny because when you said that this was how you opened your show, I, my first reaction was like, oh, psh, that's that's so simple. And then I started thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is not so simple because you're right. There's a million ways you can go with it and a million reasons uh, to actually make horror. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, I kind of interpreted it in terms of why is it, why am I using it to tell my stories? Right. Why is it the mechanism? Um, and I thought a lot about this because I made a movie called Meth Head that was a very, very dark, dark film. It made people very uncomfortable, made them not so sure they wanted to sit through all of it. And it was hard to get people into the audience. And after I made Crazy Bitches, I realized that actually if I had made Meth Head as a horror movie, Mm -hmm. I would have been able to make the same point, but I could have made it in a more grand way that would have actually invited more people in. Because I think people, you know, they don't, they, they want to squirm, but they don't want to squirm when it feels bad, they want to squirm because they know that in the end, it's not real. Right. And so they can sort of take the ride and have the fun without having the uh, like emotional pain that a standard film might give you. So I'm, I'm assuming then that the suggestion is that the power of horror is sometimes we can use that otherness to explore things that we maybe don't want to look at directly. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's sort of a... It magnifies things in a way that allows people to accept them or see them or hear them where you couldn't get away with it in a normal film, a drama or a comedy or comedy drama or whatever. Right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned how dark meth head is. And then Crazy Bitches is definitely sort of in a a very opposite direction. There's a lot of humor to it. Yeah. Was that a direct result of the dark material of meth head that you wanted to go in an opposite direction yeah exactly absolutely you know when we were shooting meth head it was very difficult and even the crew members were emotionally um affected by it so the end of each day was heavy everybody was leaving in a very heavy place then i edited it so i was living with this material for through that whole process right and then i took it on tour and you know, everybody in the Q&As, they want to tell you their story and they want to come up afterwards and show you pictures of 
the son that was lost or the daughter that is, they don't know where she is, but they're taking care of her, her kids, you know, it's, and it just wore on me. It was really, really hard um, to take it. And I wanted to support the film, so I did, but I thought I wanted to really go the opposite direction and do something that I could be gleeful about. Right. That every day on the set was going to be a fun day and not a, you know, tear jerking day. Sure. Now, if if you don't mind talking about it, I am curious, knowing that kind of material and the the sort of toll that it takes, what led you to that project to begin with? To Method? Yes. Um, it was a confluence of two, two people's journeys. So my brother-in-law passed away from complications of his meth addiction at about the same time that my friend John came back into my life having disappeared with a serious meth addiction for several years. And while Dickie was dying, John and I had a conversation and he took me out to lunch. It was almost like that. I want to make retribution sort of thing they do in AA, but it wasn't that. Right. But he was like, I just want you to know where I went and why I dropped out of your life. Cause he was a very dear friend. And, um, he told me the bookends of his story. And I thought those bookends were like how we got in, how we got out. And I right. thought they were a, set for telling a story but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it yet and then when Dickie passed away and we uncovered the truth you know just the depth of the issue mm-hmm. um, just cleaning out his apartment I mean there just were things it was just a really awful uh, and enlightening experience I thought how can two people that I love so much have been touched by the same drug so deeply right? and one made it out and one didn't and I wanted to understand it more. And then I started talking to people and realizing how bad the meth problem is. Even now, people think that it's sort of washed away, but it hasn't. You know, after, you know, after uh, people figured out how to get around the new regulations in 2007 or whenever it was that they put them through, it just started rebounding. So by the time we were coming back out with meth head, it was back ticking back up on the rise. And I just, even with all the opioids, it's still a lot of times in combination with opioids now. So it's harder to get the opioids. They move to like sort of speedballing it with meth. And then when they can't get it, they just move right into meth. So it's, it's sort of still the unspoken, ugly stepchild of drugs. And I just felt like it needed to be talked about from a layman's point of view, you know, like for, for somebody who was so stunned by it all. Well, a layman's point of view, but clearly there are personal connections there that affected yeah. you enough to want to explore this. Yeah. And uh, often on this show, when we speak about horror, we often talk about the catharsis of horror. But this is really real life horror and utilizing art maybe for catharsis in, in a different way. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that I felt... It is certainly something I can be really proud of because we know we've saved lives. We've been told, um, people have reached out and said, I went into rehab after seeing your movie. Uh, you know, I've I've shown it to my clients, therapists use it sometimes. And so we've had a real impact, maybe a one person by one person impact, but we've had an impact and that matters. And for my friend John, who shared his story with me, um, I think it was in some ways life-changing because he used to have a scar from where he picked 
and it was just one scar. So, you know, you hear about the people with all the scabs, but he had one, it was just one spot. And he kind of wore it as a badge of honor to say, look what I came out of. Right. And after we got through the shoot and got through all the festivals and put it out there in the world and started realizing we were helping people, he realized he didn't need he didn't need that badge of honor anymore. And he went to a dermatologist who took it away, you know, sewed it up and made it go away. And uh, and I think it was a very, very healing process for him. It was rough on both of us. I can imagine. But, um, and particularly just plumbing the story, getting to the root of it, and uh, having to take him back into places and then having... Um, it just ra- it just brought up a lot of uh, insecurity, pain, all the things that he associated originally with the drug and using the drug and and questioning and all that other stuff. And so it was a, it was a very bonding journey for both of us together because it was important for me to have to be able to s- to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it and how I felt I needed to tell it, but still honor and protect him, his family you know, the other people involved in his life. Right. Um, so it was, it was, a, it was quite, quite a journey for us. Well, and speaking of that journey, I mean, uh, when we began this discussion about the path that you took to create this film, we also talked about how then Crazy Bitches is born out of the need to kind of get away from the dark and touch on lighter material and uh, how those are different journeys and how we engage with art in different journeys. And with that in mind, before we, we kind of progress towards that discussion, I would like to go backwards a little bit in time and, and talk about where you come from. Uh, were you always interested in film? Uh, was this something that you you found your way into? I was always interested in film as an audience member. I used to go, you know, my mom would just drop me off at the theater, mm-hmm. and I would just go from movie to movie to movie. I would see two or three movies in a in an afternoon on a Saturday, and it didn't matter to me what they were. Uh, I just was happy to walk into whatever what happened to be playing at the triplex that that right. weekend you know um so i was and and i one thing that i always remember is there were times when i would sit in a movie theater and the lights would go down and i would i would well up i would want it would it, like right now it makes me want to cry to think about that experience where the lights go down and the screen comes up and this this thing is going to happen and I don't know what it is, but I'm going to be taken on a ride, and I'm and I and I'm excited to go on it, and live in somebody else's imagination for a while. And so I know that I had a deep love for it, but I wasn't brought up thinking you were gonna like that. wasn't I grew up in Delaware, right? You know, I mean, like I my parents were academics, so there was an expectation that I was going to get, you know, a a, a proper diploma to do something that actually would make me a living because god knows this doesn't and um and i just i went i graduated high school early and i i went to college when i was 16 and i went crazy wild and just was like i can't stay in this little town anymore and i left and went to new york and then from there it was just a it was a it was just a constant search for what am i supposed to be doing so you leave delaware you go to new york is there a definitive moment then where you realize, I don't want to just be that audience member who loves movies. This is my thing. Or did it happen gradually? It was it was gradual. I started, I took an art class and then I got 
I was painting and I was actually selling my paintings, but I was kind of bored because there was a lot of downtime. So I took an acting class and then I got hooked on acting. And then I had this, you know, just really ridiculous idea that I would support myself as a, as a, because I booked like the first thing I went on. I'm like, oh, I'm going to support myself as a, as a actor. Right. And do my art. <laughs> and uh, that qu- quickly, you know, became uh, apparent that that wasn't going to happen. But uh, but I really fell in love with the acting, and then the acting took me into t- took me out here, out to L.A., and um, and then over a course of time, I started getting really frustrated with the work because you you know you do these low budget films, and most of the time, the person is a first time everything, first time director, producer, you know, wearing four hundred hats, and it's very hard to pull that off on a first time. Yeah, and. Um, so I did a lot of films that I felt like had so much potential, but in the end they felt they fell wildly apart and got very frustrated with it. And I was asked to come in and do some ADR on something and I, I, the, the wife had called me and I, I was like, you know, you have bigger problems than the two lines you can't understand me saying. This, this film has a, a lot of problems and it could be good. And she's like, well, everybody loves this film. What are you talking about? And I was like, no, everybody doesn't love this film. They haven't told you that, but they've told me that. And she's like, well, what would you do? And I sat down and I broke down that film and I gave edit notes. And he didn't take them all, but he he did take some and he went back and he fixed it. And then I started thinking, why am I doing this for somebody else? You know, why if 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 I actually can look at a film and think of a film in this way, and I'm frustrated by having no control over how a story turns out. Maybe I should try the other side. The other side. So that's how I got into to directing. I had been writing. I had written a uh, I had written a ghost ghosty creepy little script Ooh, that how uh, applicable to the show. I know. <laughs> I know. My very first script was a ghost story. It was and it's still my favorite script but it's like a you know of course first time out and your imagination goes wild and I wrote basically what's a the cheapest I could do it is five million so that's on hold but um, but still waiting to be made oh yeah investors I'm gonna uh, make it if you're listening and you want to see this ghost movie make it happen that's right uh, so I, I really love the idea of of you coming from because I had looked uh, at, at your resume before uh, we met up today just to see if there was anything I was not uh knowledgeable about and of course when you talk to people you learn all sorts of things i had seen that you had worked as an actor yeah but i was going to ask you about that and uh, i'm really interested in the idea that your act your frustration in the world of acting led to you wanting to kind of curate the stories yourself and i think that we don't take into account often how listless it probably feels to be an actor when you come in and you are you are kind of the conduit for the story but have no control over the story and how maybe empowering it is to to step to the other side it is empowering you know i uh i think that it's not for everybody and there are actors who just they love their process and they love what they do and they're and hopefully they get things they can be proud of at the end of the project but i don't i don't like not being in some kind of control if i'm giving my heart and soul as an actor i I don't want it wasted, right. you know? So I think that was like my my original impetus was just I was going to write stuff I could star in and I was going to make stuff that I could do. And then I realized that really being on the other side 
uh, I think required more respect in and of itself than for me to go off as making that like the secondary thing. Um, but, you know, I, <laughs> part of the glee of being a director mm -hmm. for me is that sort of I am still acting, but I'm acting all the roles. Right. <laughs> because I'm a I'm actually guiding the performance. You know, we do rehearsals. I rehearse like it's a stage show before everything I do. So the actors go in really ready so that really on the set all I'm doing is tweaks. You know, remember this and we talked about that and I need you to go deeper. But the process of rehearsal is where we really get to delve into it. And I get the joy of working with actors, which I love. I mean, I love them. But I also get to feel like I've had some part of each of those little characters that come out because I've infused my own understanding of them in there. Which leads us, I think, in, in somewhat a natural way to discussing crazy bitches. Because when you talk about rehearsing and character dynamics, these uh, both iterations of it are very ensemble oriented mm -hmm. with very dynamic characters and I can see now when you talk about your process and then thinking about the film how that would apply so since you get to live out all of those lives before we even get to see it on screen where does crazy bitches come from is that and I, I assume all from you but like where where does that project begin yeah I mean if you're a writer usually a lot of what's in a script is yours. Right. It might be a little piece of you tucked away somewhere. Um, you know, it's funny because there was, there's a, there's, there are some scenes and lines in Method that are pretty rough. And when I sent it to John after, you know, on the first pass, he was like, oh my God, where, where did this come from, Jane? And I was like, well, you know, we all have a lot of different parts of ourselves and right. have had lots of different experiences in our lives. And, it came from me, you know? I, so, yeah, each one of those characters is a little bit me, and some more so and some less so. But I also write for my friends. With Crazy Bitches in particular, I wrote initially every single character in season one was, or the feature, was um, a friend written specifically for somebody. And then several of them weren't able to do it when the time came. Wilson Cruz was supposed to be in it, and he had... He took over some position at GLAAD. There was a temporary emergency position at the very, very last moment, literally when I was casting the other three roles. Um, my friend Nicar Zadigan was supposed to be in it. She was in Meth Head, but she went off and did bigger, you know, bigger things. Uh, uh, Taya Gill was supposed to be in it. And Taya had a stalker a horror, that she got from a horror film she'd done, and she became very scared to do it. Um and there was one other role, I can't remember who it was now, but there was one other role that I had written that was also for somebody that couldn't do it. But I love everybody I got in, in the place of it, but the, the the point is that I take that a, a person that I know very well and I take pieces of them as well. Right. And they know I did it. I mean, they know I'm like basically writing them. Which has to be interesting because, I mean, first off, the title is Crazy Bitches. And then uh, with regard to the feature of first season, uh, it, it really is preying upon the idea of, of the vanity that we bring to social situations. Uh, did anyone uh, take umbrage with the fact that obviously you were writing for them and sort of about them, but putting them in this kind of like heightened scenario? 
You know, strangely, no. I mean, everybody had a good time with it. I mean, they know I love them. And, right. you know, I don't, none, none of them are really vain people. It's just, I just took the things that they're actually proud of and that they're good at and I exaggerated them. You know, I, I made that into a vanity when in real life it's not a vanity for them. But they all know. I mean, nobody got, nobody, maybe not to my face. I don't know. Like, who knows? Uh, what I, I really love about, um, when I saw Crazy Bitches, I had seen it on the festival circuit mm-hmm. uh, in in the feature format. And uh, I remember really digging the idea that you seem to approach it with the idea of that horror movie trope of like a group of friends reuniting to go to a cabin in the woods or like a remote location and then everything plays out. But then how you structured the story took us into very new territory that I thought was really awesome. And uh, when I had seen it, and one of the things that I think a lot of people really were attracted to was the fact that you kind of brought that familiarity that we culturally know and put the queer lens on it, which is why it then like rolled out very well at queer film festivals. And I'm curious about um, the decision to to make an LGBTQ story in this space because when we met we talked about uh, you know the the queer horror of it all at Comic Con and um, you had a lot of really interesting insight which I kind of almost felt like your process is uh, in a way post queer because of your ability to bring a lot of different people together but I know it was important to you to tell that story with these people so I was just kind of wondering why why yeah. Um, you know, when I look at my world, my world is a blend Mm -hmm. and I also think that there are, and not so much anymore, I mean, things are changing, I think, you know, from when I started working in, you know, uh, queer cinema, I guess you'd call it back with Elena and Don, which is a lesbian romance, which is totally the other side of horror. Right. Uh, unless you find lesbian romance ho- horrible or, or scary. Well, not <laughs> but, our uh, listeners. Maybe maybe in a, <laughs> a different state. But. Well, I know a couple of lesbians that are like, oh, God, <laughs> romance. Um, but uh, I was sort of drawn into the community. And my brother-in-law was, before he passed away, he, he was a gay man and, Many of my good friends are gay or lesbian, and uh, so some of my moving into the queer space or the the horror space with it had to do with just that I was already making movies in the queer space, right? And then I just was going to tell tell this other story, and horror fit with what I was trying to express, right? So I wasn't a deliberate like, okay, now I'm going to make a queer horror movie. Um, it wasn't that at all. And in fact, I, I, because I'm straight, I see it more as just a horror movie. Right. That just happens to have queer characters. You know, I don't, I don't see see it as siphoned off in that way. Right. And I think that's why I use the phrase post queer, because when we had this discussion uh, in San Diego, there was, uh, you know, kind of a discourse that happened with some of the other filmmakers with the idea of um, do queer actors need to portray queer characters or do only queer filmmakers need to make queer films? And I 
I personally am of the mind that when you bring the reality of your life to the situation as you did, these are the people that populate your life and these are your friends, then that is you bringing an authentic experience, queer or no. And so I, I love the idea that for you, it wasn't necessarily about making a queer movie. It was making a movie that was authentic to the life that you live and the people that populate it. But do you get resistance every so often with, with that in mind? or Only on that panel. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I you know, most people, if there's resistance, nobody's expressed it to right. me. Um, I, I actually just... Uh, most people really enjoy crazy bitches. I mean, there's there's some guys out there that just think it's the biggest piece of shit going. But uh, <laughs> but can I say that? Should yeah, I? absolutely. Um, but but most you know the people that I, I I can tell you know you sit through a I sat through a lot of festivals and you can just right. tell that there's a lot of joy in in just watching the film and having the film unfold and having these characters be a part of it. Um, and you know. The gay audience enjoys it. The straight audience enjoys it. The, you know, I mean, it's a very LGBTQ experience with some S in there. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. I've never had anybody say, except on that panel, which was was like I wasn't quite sure how to how to handle it because. Um, well, and I also think some things have changed too. I think right now people are a little more sensitive. And a little, and sort of circling the wagons a little bit more than they ha- had been in the past. So right. maybe I will, maybe, and, and at this point, a lot of people know me in the community. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, I'm embedded um, as an ally. And in that, in that panel space, those people didn't know me at all. They didn't really know my history. They didn't know, you know, what I've done in the past and where I come from and what my intentions are. And so I sort of, I think I just sat on the other side of their 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 fence, you know. Well, it's interesting too because I think that you're right. It it is a discussion specifically in that place at that panel that was happening in the abstract without the actual knowledge of the history and the situation. Uh, as someone who is familiar with your work, and uh, I love Crazy Bitches. I remember I told you that when we uh, first connected. I entirely see. Uh, why it connected and landed with so many people. And I adore it. And I also think, and I think this is a good time since we're talking about it, to have the discussion of the air quotes reaching across the aisle. I think that if we only make movies for ourselves, we're never going to rock the needle enough to get the attention of the people whose perceptions we want to change or whose like you know horizons we want to broaden. If we only tell queer stories for queer people without, you know, seeing allies who are growing and changing and wanting to understand and make stories in the space, then how do we claim that we want everybody to accept? Yeah. It's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation uh, with another filmmaker about Kevin Smith and the idea that when Chasing Amy was made, it kind of almost was made with this sort of straight guy lens of Mm -hmm. here's a lesbian who I think is hot and like so I can change her. Because blah, 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 whatever stoner logic that was utilized in the film. And, you know, that's sheer straight male fantasy. Totally. But 
it landed in a moment of indie cinema that people went and saw it. It created a discussion. And I think based on things that I have read, the person who got educated the most as an ally making that movie was Kevin Smith. And I've heard him even say, I would never make that movie now because I've learned things about the queer community yeah. that I didn't know. And like yeah. he's out there like he he's uh, he produced Small Town Gay Bar, a documentary about uh, Bear Bar up in uh, Canada. And uh, he's been a very vocal and out uh, ally for us. And it's like if we had shut him out before he learned, then would any of us be the better for it? No, probably not. You know, did you know that that was loosely based on Guinevere Turner? Really? On- Chasing Amy was? Yeah. You know, I think that I knew that, but yeah. this is a refresher. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the whole story, but it's it's in her bio. I mean, just, you, can, <laughs> you, you can ask her. I'll, I'll, you know, she can come on your show and she can ask her about it. But, um, but you know, I, I also think, yeah, and, and he definitely, I'm glad that he learned. And, and, and actually that film was for a straight person who at the time wasn't embedded in the gay community uh just the fact that they had made a film about a woman who was bi or lesbian was interesting and and out front because there weren't a lot of opportunities for that so in some ways it's like how does the how does the door get broken down and if it takes a sort of a clunky clunky kick right it's still a door being broken down and you know the other thing i'll say is that one of the advantages i have is that i don't make I don't make any any of my projects that have LGBTQ characters. I don't make them in a vacuum. Right. Right. They are always vetted by my friends. You know, I'm writing for them. They're going to tell me if I'm I'm off. Right. Um, and in a really actually interesting because I had a script that was floating around and I can't make it now just because the times have changed so badly and it's too charged. But uh it had a it was a, it was a, a gay and a lesbian who were cops or they were detectives and they didn't like each other but they were thrown together to solve a string of murders in a drag club right and uh the idea came to me from Kathy DeBono and Johnny Creo so it was their thing that they needed help with right it had a trans character uh that i basically wrote for Candace um, who owned the club. It had a trans, I, that I wrote for Buck, a trans male character who was pretending to be a man, but was a woman, but was a man. It's like very, it was very meta. Right. And the whole idea was it was going to turn gender on its head. Like the whole, my whole idea with this feature script was how do I, how do I get people to think they know what they're getting? Oh, I know what gay looks like. I know what a lesbian's like. I know right. what, you know, a trans person, you know, I've had, I've met one, you know, they have their perceptions. And then as the film goes along, I keep turning them on their head and turning on their head and turning on their head. So when it gets to the end of the movie, they're just people. Right. And you can't tell, you know, you can't lay your thing on them. The only reason I bring this up is because Candace vetted it, vetted it and Buck vetted it. Right. And it was ideas and that were read and explored with a gay and a lesbian uh, writer-producer team. Right. 
And so it, trans actors, gay, lesbian, writer, er, producer. Yeah. Got it. And it went out to somebody who is a, is a lesbian producer in Canada who doesn't know me. Right. And her first reaction was, she, she can't write this. She needs to get a gay voice on it. And I was like, well, I, I've had a lot of gay voices on it. Right. But the person didn't know me. So the knee jerk reaction was straight girl can't write gay. Right. You know. So I have I have run into a little bit of that recently, but only only specifically with this project and then that panel. Right. Well, and I was just interested in talking to you about that because I do think it begs a larger discussion that we've been having here today. And the idea that sometimes circumstances should be what dictates because if we only judge by things we don't know or things we assume from the outside how do we ever move the needle forward yeah and uh you know i i of course as a queer person whenever there's a news article or something that's like we're gonna have the lead of this gay oriented tv show be played by a straight white guy or whatever i'm like i get another one but on the same token, if I can see that the creative team is making efforts to explore and understand my community, I feel better about it than someone who is merely casting someone for economic yeah. uh, or, or you know, financial gain. Right. Because uh, I do think that, you know, there, of course, are financial reasons and economic decisions made with every film that's made. But if it's made in addition to some thoughtfulness... I can get past that. Yeah. And I, I uh, you know, you and I had not actually had a chance to sort of catch up post the panel about some of those points that were made. So it's yeah. kind of like we're just doing it here on the air. <laughs> but I think it's an important conversation. And, you know, I really value your input for it because clearly everything that you do, uh, you know, we, we talked about the very personal journey of Meth Head and then like curating this world for crazy bitches based on people in your life is made with a measure of thoughtfulness. And honestly, that's all I can ask from an artist. And that you're doing it, to me, is is important, so. Well, thanks. You know, I, I think it's interesting, too, because I, and, and I, I understand why it's important. And as you said, particularly, like, right at this time when we're at just a strange juncture. Yes. You know, are we moving forward? Are we going backward? We're kind of doing both. Right. We're caught in some weird riptide thing going on right now. That uh, gay actors and, and trans actors are given their opportunity when it specifically requires, the character specifically calls for it. Right. Um, and then at the same time, I'm actually in some ways doing the opposite because like Guinevere Turner is a lesbian icon. You know, she's... Right. Uh, but she plays a straight woman in Crazy Bitches 1. You know, she plays a straight woman. And right. uh, Candace Kane plays a, a cisgender woman. Right. And in season two, Buck plays a cisgender gay man. So I'm actually not hiring them to play trans. Right. Because it, there's a part of me that wants to erase the different. Right. And maybe that's not my position. Well, and I think, too, there's the side argument that, yes, like I, of course, when trans parts are, are out there, I want trans actors to play them. And I, I, I see that. But I also think that then what you're talking about is taking it the next step 
to have queer people play beyond just queer parts, to have trans people play beyond just trans part. Like until we get to that kind of e- equality, I totally understand the need for column A, but like let's start allowing performers to even to move into column B as well. Right. Because you hold you actually hold back the community when you aren't saying when you're not opening it up like that. But right. the problem is if you open it up like that, you have to open it both directions. And it's a double-edged, this could be a double-edged sword. Right. You know, you can't make the argument in one direction and then take it back in the next. But I know just from, Trent Candace is a very good friend of mine, and uh, Buck is also a good friend of mine, and having had long conversations with them, playing cisgender is important right. to them. You know, it might not be important to other trans actors, but it is important to them. So I'm, I'm writing stories for what they need and want. Right. And um, and so I, I don't know. I just, and I, I think that you don't want to, I, I just was going back over all my old stuff because I was trying to get, I was trying to figure out what what uh, journalists to go back to and reviewers to go back to and who mm-hmm. did I know. And so I was re- listening to a podcast that somebody had done about crazy bitches and they had said, and then the guy comes out of the forest and the girls are like, ooh, there's the guy. And I was like, gay. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, why can't he play straight? Right. Why can't he be a straight guy just because you happen to believe or, or know that he's not? Right. Like that's not fair either. And that comes from the gay community. That was not a straight man calling it. It was a gay man going, yeah, he can't be that character because he is so gay. And he's, you know, it's just, I don't know. We have to be careful. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. I mean, every community we have to work on inside as well. Uh, So, I mean, obviously very serious things. And I'm glad, you know, I think that we gave the audience a lot of points to ponder. I don't know that like here today we're going to solve all the issues of the world. Uh, And there are are many, many people that work on these things. And it's going to take many great years before uh, we probably get it all sorted out. So we'll leave it for uh, listeners to think about. Um, and just kind of, we've been talking about crazy bitches both directly and indirectly throughout all of this. Um, one of the things that we've alluded to that I wanted to ask you about, when I saw Crazy Bitches, it was uh, a feature film. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of took it back and re-kind of constructed it as a web series. Yeah. And this new season, uh, The Spa Day, is the second season. Talk to me a little bit about the decision to transform the feature into a series. Well, I was looking, it's twofold. I got hit by piracy really badly. And while I recognize that means there were fans of the movie, it also made it very difficult for me to raise money. Right. Because investors don't really care that you have fans if the fans aren't paying. So I had more to say. I I already had a sequel written, but I couldn't get the funding for it. And I was frustrated by that. So I thought, well, what can I do? How how can I continue to have the conversation without needing as much money? Right. Um, simplifying it a little bit. This was my concept anyway. And I also was looking for a format that wasn't pirated, you know, that I that I might actually be able to someday make my money back on something or make a paycheck on something would be really nice. Right. So I thought, oh, you know, nobody's really pirating um web series because they're usually given away for free you know right so there's no need to so maybe i'll bypass that issue maybe this is the direction to go and then i started kind of just like looking at how 
the story would lay out in these little 10-minute pieces. And it occurred to me that actually when I write a script, and I don't know about you, but when I write a script, I look at 10-page increments. You know, you have your, your three-act break, but I look at the 10, every 10 pages or 8 to 10 pages on my, is something moving the story along. Right. So kind of organically, feature films are structured to be broken up into 10-minute pieces. Right. And if you look at the old, way, way back in the day, they used to do 10-minute reels. So they'd have to change the reel every 10 minutes to keep the movie going. And it just seemed there's like something, there's something to it. Right. And then when I, when I, I was writing the script, I you know was breaking it down and figuring out how to arc those 10 pages. And I really liked the process of it. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think actually Crazy Pitches 1 plays better as a web series, even though it played really well as a feature. And and uh, and I can at least say that because I've been to enough screenings. Right. Um, I think it might actually play better as a web series. How interesting. Yeah. Is that sort of a revelation as a filmmaker then to like have created something in one format and then after it's had a life, break it down and be like, oh, because not many filmmakers get that experience. Yeah, no, it was it was interesting. It was fun. It was a little bit of a challenge. I had some additional material that I had shot after a focus group. I had gotten some advice, and I had gone back and shot a bunch of extra stuff that I thought I needed. Right. Some of the stuff I went back and shot I did need because they were like, I found out that people don't like to watch a horror movie and not see a dead body. Right. That was a revelation to me that I had to correct after I had finished shooting the feature. But I had a lot of other stuff that I picked up and I had ended up not putting it in. It was it slowed the slowed the story down. And so I thought, well, you know, I have all this intro stuff that I could use in the first episode. And then I had some scenes I had to drop because they were actually too tight. The place we were shooting was so small that some of the shots were very, very tight in a couple particular scenes. And I felt it didn't go with the whole scope of the movie right so i had left them out but in in a we call it we're calling it a digital series now but right in a digital series format you know you're going for that small screen you need the bigger you need the tighter shots right so it actually just uh for a lot of reasons made sense it was just a challenge to go back and you know to some degree because i had to use the stems to edit so the sound had to be redone right um i had new music written because actually the the show has more music in it than the feature did. And then I wanted to thread it together. So I took some of the music from two and put it in one. And then my composer wrote new material for me. Um, and I recolored it so that it tied closer to season two. Um, but in the process, I added a bunch of little montage things and a little some things that just made it like complete, complete episodes. And then when I w- watched it through, I thought, this actually something nice about these little mini arcs. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Right. We'll see. I mean, I guess the viewer can be the judge of whether it it's better or worse. But then when you return to do Spa Day, uh, you said that there was already an existent script. I, what was it? it was Crazier Bitches, right? Crazier Bitches. Yeah, I was going to do Crazy, Crazier, and Craziest. Because <laughs> I remember yeah. I remember the, uh, the social media campaign for Crazier Bitches. Yeah. And then, um, so was was. Crazier bitches, what's what uh, spa day no. became? No, totally different. Totally different. Um, crazier bitches is season four. Oh, interesting. Yes. 
Um, there was a time, a really big time jump that took me from one to four, and I just thought, well, maybe I'll just fill it in with some other stuff. Right. And I also, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have it laid out. I, I, I'm doing one through five, so there's five a five season arc, and four is mommy's behaving badly. It's about how mothers pass on their insecurities to their children. Oh, I like that. And I just felt like I needed to get there because some of the characters, you know, I bring I bring people back. So like there's people that died in one that right. come back as new characters in two. And I, you know, people are like, why did you do that? I'm like, because they're my friends and I want to work with them again. Like, <laughs> I can, you know, I can right. do it. Like, who cares? But um, but so I had brought, for instance, Guinevere Turner back in a new role in four. But we don't. It, it, it just didn't bridge right so i thought well you know i can start over here i can work our way into the mommies uh better if i have a couple of things in between so so you have a multi-season plan yeah 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 now is it always vacations gone wrong or uh no i mean season three is set on a soap set okay so Gwyneth turner's character is a soap actress and um at the end of eight episode eight she invites Honey Roberts, the country star, to have a role on the soap opera because her girlfriend, her wife is the uh, producer. So she has an in. So I, I'm like justifying bringing some of those characters from two into three. And then three and four will start blending. So the characters in four are, the whole thing is set primarily in a preschool. Uh, so four, the characters in four start showing up in three and then three and four merge, and then it, it ties us, because one is four. Does that make any sense? Characters in one, some of them show up in four. New people in two, they all show up in three. I love a complex timeline. I'm also yeah. here for this. And I love the idea. I'm, I'm, I'm very fond, and I think a lot of filmmakers do this. You find your people, mm -hmm. and you want to keep working with your people. And yeah. I love the idea... Um, uh, this I rarely I rarely allude to my own film school background on the show. So listeners, here's a treat. But when I was studying film in college, I was like obsessed with Robert Altman. And I love the idea that Robert Altman always had a troop of people that you would if you watch a lot of those movies, the same people come back yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, well, it's a movie. You can have whoever you want. Why do you keep working with the same? And now that I do this, I'm like. Oh, because it's that artistic synergy. Yeah. And like now that we have, uh, you know, we've seen anthologized TV shows that bring characters back or in some of these seasons of American Horror Story where Sarah Paulson plays four different characters in one season. Yeah. Why not? Why not? And so that's super cool. And I love, yeah. you know, you've got your people. Yeah. And um, it's delicious as an audience member, too, because we get to uh, like a little window into your world. And uh, when when they're having fun, we have fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and every every time I introduce, there are new people, too. So I'm always expanding my my group. Right. Um, because, you know, people become unavailable or, you know, however it rolls out. So so it's it's fun because I get to get get to know some new people. Right. But I don't have to get to know everybody new each time. Because also there's a shorthand that comes when you're working with actors on a consistent basis. You know, they know how I work. So I don't have to explain it. I know how they work. They don't have to explain it. Right. I know how they need their direction. Some people like to talk a lot about character and then not do too much talking after that. Some people, you know, are really good at 
you know, long explanations. Some people want really short explanations. They don't want to, you know, ha- have too much noise going in their head. Some people have actually asked for line readings. It's not, it's rare. Right. But every now and then, I, you know, there's a couple of actors I know that when they're stuck, you know, it's like, do you want a line reading? Yeah, I'll take a line reading. You know, it's like they, 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 that's how they work. Right. So it makes, it makes the rehearsal process more fun and it also gets more done. So there's not that learning process first, right. you know, you just get, you just kick right into it. Well, I'm excited to see the show progress. I think that, yeah. uh, and I love, I love the, the, uh, the different scenarios. Uh, the only reason I asked about the the vacations is because obviously the, the setup of the the first one and then a spa day. Yeah. And I was just like, man, Jane must like have bad luck on vacations. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, you know, spa days was like, first of all, where do you take vanity? Right. I mean, you know, and also I poke a little bit of fun at, because it's all of it's a wellness ranch, it's right? Ca- it's called Ranch Wellness, and it's it's so I poke a little bit of fun about the preciousness of centering and all of that, right? But I will say again, you know, when you're exploring new wor- worlds, it's good to have somebody, whether it's the, a gay world or it's some other world, have somebody be your guide. Like John was my guide into math, um, but Jessica Graham. I is a friend and I, I called her and I was like, Jessica, do you do you want to be in this? I'm gonna write a yoga teacher into into this thing. And she's like, Yeah. And so I'd periodically call her and go, you know, Jessica, what is like what would you do? What's like something you would do if you were teaching a class and you had this group of women and I and you know, she sent me back, you know, three different things. And one of them was that she they she asks the question, give me three words to describe your vagina. And I'm like, Oh my God. I, ha- I have to use that. That right. is so funny. Like, I know that she does it seriously, but to me, that is hilarious. And I make complete fun of it. And Jessica thinks it's hysterical. And she she is so spot on. Like, she, she's like, I know, you know, because I make fun of it in a loving way. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings and I'm not, you know, sh- sh- shedding anybody of their, their, you know, beliefs or anything. But uh, she goes for it and it's it's fun and then I can use what she does because it feels real because she does it every day but spin it out into something right. a little more bizarre like take it to that heightened place yeah uh, so I wanted to ask you about I was looking at your IMDB and you're working on a VR short yeah uh, well uh, don't come over yes. I talked about on the panel so don't come over is a feature script that I wrote with Guinevere Turner and she's gonna start I'm gonna direct we're looking for money for it. And uh, last summer, it was like maybe two, no, it was last summer, we shot the VR short. I mm-hmm. met some guy in Cannes who had a 250 lens, which is sort of like he calls it couch potato VR because you don't have to look behind you. You know, everything happens. Like within your periphery. Within your periphery. So, um, and I thought that was perfect because I was looking to do something that was from the point of view of the victim. Oh, interesting. And so I thought, well, that's perfect because then the victim becomes, like he built a helmet and we put the camera on the outside of the helmet with the lens on on the outside so that uh, Mandala Rose plays the victim and um, so she can walk through the space and actually and you can see where where she's going what she's doing and um and it's really it was it's really fun i just need money to finish it cuz was it a, a unique well i mean obviously it's unique but like was it a difficult format to adjust to as a filmmaker since you're used to shooting in different ways you know my theater background came in handy 
I, I think that if I were just a feature director, it might be it might might it might have felt more alien than it right. was. You have to actually block it like you're blocking theater, and your actors actually have to perform it like it's theater. They have to know where they're going, and it and it's all one take. Um, so that made it also very interesting. My my VR guy, you know, I was like, okay, here's the here's a new script, and I was writing like, okay. If she looks to the left, she'll see. Like I was trying to place things, and I, and he's like, "You can't, Jane. You're just confusing the issue. Just right. just know for yourself. That's your script. Right. We don't want to see any of that." Because I was like, "Well, but if I put this here and put that there, but it, I but to be the 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 downside of all of it was that we didn't have enough time, so we were we shot it all in a day, and it's short, but it's complicated. And there were yeah. mirror shots, you know. So like literally, the there were times when we had to take the helmet off have mandala looking at the camera as it's as if it's a mirror right the mirror the door opens the mirrors on the back of the door so you have to actually have the camera open like the door oh wow and then we have to match to what she actually sees with the helmet on so it was a very complicated shoot that way and um you just have to be very spatially aware it sounds like very spatially aware and you know there, you have to think a, a lot of it out ahead of time in terms of edit because some of it just has to. The compositing is tricky, right? And compositing isn't really done very much in VR at the moment, so that was kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. Which is why my VR guy was interested in it because um, because he liked the fact that he was going to be able to do these tr- tricks, you know. Right. Which, you know DPs like tricks. But, they sure do. Yeah. That's uh, even sometimes uh, to the chagrin of, of the, the filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, but we love them because yeah. uh, they make ourselves look good. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, uh, for all extents and purposes, Dead for Filth is a talk show. So before they, uh, before we head off into the night, I have to ask you, you have a little talk show of your own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, called Tub Talk. Tell me about that. I just learned yeah. about this. So I'm fascinated by it. It's Tuesday Tub Talk. Tuesday Tub Talk. And it's every Tuesday at six o'clock. It's on my crazy the Crazy Bee Nation, okay, which is the Facebook page, The Crazy Bee Nation, mm-hmm. because Facebook, of course, won't let me use the word bitch. Right. Uh, uh. Just so in a whole other story another time. But um, And then on Instagram, we always do it on the guest's Instagram feed, live feed. That's so cool. And so, it's utilizing social media in such a smart way. Yeah. I mean, I you know, like in bottom line, it's just fun. I, right. I don't know what I'm getting out of, out of it necessarily, but everybody likes to do it. Everybody wants to do it. I have this guy, I call him my man behind the camera, who's a friend who doesn't even need to come over to help, but he comes over and he sits behind the camera and he'll hold up, like if people are asking questions, he'll write it down so I don't have to watch the feed so that I can answer people's questions as we go and or the guests can answer people's questions as we go. I don't know. It just caught on and we get a solid little audience every week and we that. sit in a hot tub. Though a couple of times it's been like, my guest has been like, oh, my God, can you turn this down? <laughs> like, no, that's not how hot tubs work. I can't just go bing and all yeah. of a sudden it's 95. But um, we have recently lowered it just so because a couple of people had to get out of the tub. That's the only downside. Well, I think it sounds luxurious. It's very fun. I'll have you on sometime. You I would love on. that. Yes. Okay, good. Uh, so um, one thing that we always like to ask guests because uh, Dead for Filth is show and service and worship of film. What have you seen recently that you love or that inspires you? Oh my God! 
I haven't seen any film recently. Isn't that awful? No. I mean, honestly, I ask every guest this question, but then the second I'm on someone else's podcast, I'm like, so you know, people who like are working on movies, we never have time to watch them. No time. Um, I, I, I barely like, I, I just haven't had no time. Just trying to launch Crazy Pitches has been insane. And, right. Um, and then follow up from Cannes trying to get the next thing going. I don't, I don't have time. But I do kind of decompress at the end of the day. I've been like heavily into Schitt's Creek. Like so insanely good. into Schitt's Creek. And talk about a show that where the ensemble is so awesome. So tight. Because it's one of those where, um, as an old SCTV fan, I'm like, well, I'm in this for Eugene Levy and Catherine yeah. O'Hara. And who would shine brighter than those two? And yet, every week, I'm like, oh, wait, maybe Alexis is my favorite. Or maybe yeah. I like David. Yeah. Like, And it's just then you're like, no, I like them all. Because they all bring something really special to the show. Yeah. And the writing's great. I mean, the way they work them, they, they work through every every episode is right. just startlingly good. I mean, I, I really love it. I've also got started getting a little bit into uh, Russian Doll. So good. Yeah, that that one. I mean, first episode, I was like, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then you hit number two and you're like, oh, okay, I'm in. I'm so in. I like Russian Doll as well because it plays with format length. Yeah. Which, you know, when you work in, in TV, they're always so rigid about, it's got to be this mark. It's got to be that. And digital has changed everything. Yeah. And it's sort of cool, like, if you have a 15-minute episode, you have a 15-minute episode. Or if you have an hour and 11-minute episode. I was watching Mindhunter recently, and I think episode five is almost 90 minutes. I'm like, they made a feature in the middle of this goddamn season, and no one said a word. <laughs> It's great. It is great. It's great. Because, you know, it is that hard thing. And you'll know as a screenwriter, you're like, oh, my God, I've got to get this down. Right. And sometimes it just doesn't go down. I mean, like, or you, it goes down, but it goes down artificially to a shorter amount of time when it doesn't have to be. Right. And it would hold together at a longer length. So the idea that you can just do what you want. I mean, I think probably with Crazy Bidgets is another reason why this short form content was interesting to me. Just because I can do an episode that's nine minutes and I can do an episode that's 12 minutes. You right. know, and it's how the story fits in. And I'm not trying to fit into some some time limit. And weirdly with features, you know, I found myself always marking the time because there were always all these, these rules, you know, like. Yeah. You don't want to feature longer than an hour and 45 or you're going to lose the audience unless you're, you know, Quentin Tarantino or, you know, so I don't know. With this one, I just went, screw it. I'm just going to make it. It's going to be the length it's going to be. And But I think that's great. And I think that the audience who is looking for it and discovers it, that's what they want. Yeah, I think so. Because I, there's nothing worse, I feel as an audience member and, you know, as a screenwriter, when you have to shoehorn material in to pad something out just for a runtime or you have to kind of like cut things out to make it like fit yeah. network requirements, but yeah. it, you lose something. Whereas I just think, you know, every story is a little different. So let the story be what it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's cool. All yeah. right. Well, usually around this point, uh, you know, before we head off, I ask where people can find you in the world of social media. But since Crazy Bitches, the new season just dropped, where can people find that? Right. The best thing to do is to go to crazybitches.tv, mm -hmm. which is the website, because the website has all the links and where you can buy it. So it's on iTunes, Google Play and Vimeo. Um, and there'll be more, we'll be adding more Reverie being one of them later on down the line. Um, and it has the first seasons, the first episode of each season for free. 
Oh, great. So if you want to check it out first, you can go there to check it out for free and then decide whether you want to buy it. Um, and it has bios on the actors and just some fun background and all of that other stuff. So, But but the important links are all there. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, and you know, before I forget, beyond this new season, what's next? What are you working on? You've got the VR thing that you're trying to raise money for. Right. But... I'm not even... I don't know. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is raise money for the feature. Right. With money to finish the VR short built in to the feature budget. Right. Um, and that, you know, we're, we're trying to come up, well, the budget has slid anywhere between 1.3, which is my optimal. Right. Uh, Jane gets what most mostly what she wants <laughs> to about 750, which Jane makes sacrifices, but she can live with them to about 500, which is a little painful. And then I have my fuck it, I'm going to make it budget, which Guinevere and I both don't want to do, but we right. have it at 250. And that's like, crying that's crying but we'll do it but so it's all over the map and all of it all the budgets are legit so i'm trying to raise that and i have a i have a western oh. i have a period western uh with a female lead so it's basically like lara croft in the wild wild west she's like Love kicking that. ass all all across the place with a horse and everything um so if that were that's out with a um sales agents looking for money for us for that um and then i have a really beautiful uh, love story set on an island in Scotland that a Scottish producer asked me to write based on a book. And that has a lot of traction. That actually is about two thirds financed on government funds and so tax credits. A lot happening with some tactical yeah. planning in between. Yeah. Well, awesome. I will keep fingers crossed and keep my eyes open for all of those things. Uh, Jane, where can people find you? Um, so I, I should be consistent, but I'm not because there's so many Jane Clarks. But I'm Jane C2 on Facebook. Crazy Bitches is the Crazy Bee Nation. I'm Director Jane Clark on Instagram. And I'm D-I-R Jane Clark because Director Jane Clark was too long for Twitter. Right. Uh, and then and then Crazy Bitches has an Instagram page, too, which is Crazy Bitches Digital. Great. Well, listeners, please go follow Jane. Check out the new season of Crazy Bitches. Uh, check out the first season of Crazy Bitches. Yeah. Watch Meth Head. Look for all of her work. She's awesome. I'm so glad that she came today to talk cinema, talk you know queer politics with us, all of these things. Jane, really, your story is an insight. So valuable. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Michael Verratti. This is Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>